This is Talking Asset Management with KPMG. And today, we discuss all considerations for credit funds. Well, hello, and thank you for listening to Talking Asset Management with KPMG. I hope all is well with everyone. In the second episode of our series focused on credit, we touched on how SALT is a complex and frequently overlooked area. So today, we're going to talk a little bit more about some SALT considerations for credit funds. Joining me for this session are Mike Deal, leader of KPMG's SALT Income and Franchise Practice, and Diliana Antheville, a tax managing director in our SALT practice serving many of the firm's largest credit funds. Mike, Diliana, thanks for coming to on today. Thanks for having us. Oh, you bet. Good morning, Scott. It's great speaking with you today. All right. Well, let's jump right in. First, I thought we'd talk a little bit about economic nexus and, um, you know, what does that matter? And, and uh, does, does it matter if your fund is in loan origination or they're buying loans? Maybe give us a little background on that and, and like to hear your thoughts. Yeah, that's a great question to start the conversation with. Uh, following the U.S. Supreme Court decision in Wayfair in June of 2018, there's probably a handful of states left that do not impose economic nexus for income and franchise tax purposes. And in this nexus environment, you are rightfully asking, uh, does it matter whether a credit fund originates or buys loans on the secondary market, assuming it has sufficient presence uh, in the state to create economic nexus? And what economic nexus means is that deriving income from state sources Uh, alone is sufficient to subject a taxpayer to tax in that state. In the credit fund context, for example, uh, holding loans to in-state borrowers and deriving interest income, fees, or capital gains uh, with respect to these loans can create uh, economic nexus uh, in the state. It does matter whether a fund originates or buys loans on the secondary market because Generally, originating loans creates U.S. trade or business. It similarly is considered doing business for state purposes and therefore creates nexus in that state. On the other hand, buying loans uh, it may not rise to the level of a nexus-creating activity, even in, in, in those states that adopt economic nexus. What's interesting about that, Diliana, right? Buying loans is not always created equally. Buying loans in the secondary market is one thing. Buying loans from someone that might be acting in an agency capacity or an affiliate might be another. And I think one of the one of the interesting things about that is there's a little bit of a difference in definition between what's an agent for purposes of PE for federal purposes and what's the definition of an agent under state purposes. And and the state is much more broad, including both explicit and implicit agency. So what might not be a purchased loan for PE might nevertheless, right, be a purchase loan or, or I'm sorry, a loan that's originated via agent in the uh, in the state context. So not all not all purchased loans are equal when you're looking at it through the lens of state versus the lens of, of PE for federal purposes. You are absolutely uh, right, Mike. Many states adopt the agency nexus concept and having an agent who originates the loan may be attributed to the principal so that the principal could be viewed as originating the the loan um, and therefore generating ordinary business income from sources in that state. Yeah, so as if the you know the federal's got enough gray area right on whether or not you're you're an agent and this whole season and sale concept, but uh, you obviously have to look at each state as well. Absolutely. 
All right, that's that's good. You know, so I guess once we have economic nexus or nexus in the state, uh, if we have a few different states, there's uh, you have to apportion your income amongst those states. How 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 are you guys seeing things done lately on that? Also, a great question, and this is kind of flowing in that it, the the answer is it really depends on on what you have. As Diliana said, if you have a loan that's originated and it's really part of the business, that's generally going to be apportioned. So you'll generally apportion it at the fund level, and then that that state source amount will flow up to the investors. If, however, you have a loan that's purchased and it's more portfolio or it's more investment type income, then in those situations you wouldn't you wouldn't apportion, you'd instead source or tax it in the state where the investor is located. And I think that's what we've typically seen over the years in, in many credit portfolio situations, but there is a distinction. So so this whole concept we talked about economic nexus Kind of the same thing applies on the apportionment side. If it's business, generally be apportioned. If it's purchased or portfolio, that that will sometimes or very oftentimes be apportioned or, I'm sorry, sourced based on where the actual investor is located. So, so paying attention to that distinction matters by how it's sourced from a state perspective as well. When you get into apportioning, there's two ways to go. One of them is a market-based, which is essentially where the customer is located. The other is cost of performance. And states generally favor the market-based. Wherever the loan customer is, that's how the loan is going to be sourced. What's interesting about the cost of performance is that's where the individuals are that are actually performing the services. And what's really become interesting in the pandemic space that we have now, the pandemic world, is people are moving around. Um, and we see this in New York City, for example, where, you know, during the pandemic, there was this, I'm not going to say exodus, but there were individuals that decided to work from home and move out. Maybe they're in Connecticut, maybe they're in Florida. And so it really gives you an opportunity to think about where are those individuals located and how might that influence the sourcing in a cost of performance jurisdiction like in New York or or perhaps even in New York City. So really, really, uh, really a few things to think about from the uh, apportionment perspective. Great. And um, I, I assume that, um, you know, all, all the states have the same rules. So that's a, that's an easy thing to uh, to figure out, right? <laughs> if only that were the case. If only that were the case. Uh, market-based sourcing is not equal for every state and neither is cost of performance. But uh, but generally speaking, those are the two categories that we, we work with, where the customer is located, where the services are performed. So... No, good stuff. And I know, um, you know, one of the hot areas that I'm seeing, um, and it's, it's been around for a little while, but, um, you know, those those um, credit funds that, that, that want to set up treaty structures for for certain of their their investors. And, um, you know, it, it was always it was shocking the first time I learned that, that you know, you're eligible for a treaty um, benefits for federal purposes. It doesn't necessarily mean the states have to follow, which I thought was very interesting. Um, what, what are we seeing there? And, and what are some of the big states that are conforming and not conforming to those those rules? Yeah, great question, uh, Scott. As you pointed out, there are a number of states, including um, New York State, New York City, California, uh, Pennsylvania, that do not conform to treaties for income tax purposes. And in those states, a taxpayer that is uh, treaty protected is required to compute federal taxable income under the Internal Revenue Code, ignoring any and all treaty benefits. Uh, apportion that income among the states and is subject to to income tax in the non-conforming states. In addition, states do not conform to treaties for capital tax purposes, for those taxes that are based on net worth, and also for gross receipts tax purposes. 
for example, states like Washington that imposes the business and occupation tax, Ohio and Oregon, uh, which impose commercial activity taxes based on gross receipts, they do not conform to treaties. Therefore, foreign originators that rely on treaties may be subject also to non-income taxes in certain states. Yeah, definitely a, a, a complex area there for sure. Um, and what are what are some of the opportunities that we see out there um, in, in, the, in the treaty um, world in states? When we think about treaties, we are normally concerned about taxable investors, including individuals and corporations. We often overlook how treaties apply to partnerships because partnerships are not subject to entity-level tax at the federal level. However, in certain structures where the originating vehicle is a foreign partnership, that itself is uh, treaty eligible, there may be a position that uh, the income generated from originated loans that is treaty exempt is excluded from federal gross income. Because the, the states and localities I mentioned conform to federal uh, gross income and use that as the starting point for the state tax calculation, there's also a position that treaty protected income may be excluded from the tax base. Uh, for, for states that impose partnership-level tax. And those states include um, New Hampshire, business profits tax, uh, the New York City, unincorporated business tax, Tennessee, financial institution excise, of course, Texas, margin tax. All of these are partnership-level taxes uh, where one could uh, rely on a treaty uh, to exclude the income from the tax base, potentially. You know, so I think uh, with, with treaties, you know, I would imagine, you know, that's such a complex area that uh, I have to talk to my uh, co colleagues about it. But we'll probably have another another podcast just on, on treaties because there's so much to uh, to deal with and, and think about in, in those structures. One other thing that, that I know is, is a pretty hot topic in, in, in the SALT arena these days is, is when you uh, have a partnership that um, may be doing business in a state and, and you sell that partnership interest. Um, you know, what do you see in there? Yeah, this is this is really an emerging issue, and it's an area where states are are I'll say all over the board on this particular topic. And usually, what we've seen, or historically, what we've seen, is you sell a partnership interest, you're going to source that where the investor's located. That's that's been the general treatment over the years. And what states are doing now is they're looking at this, saying, "Wait a minute, if you sell a partnership interest, and that partnership happened to be doing business in a state, maybe." You had a loan originations there and you had economic nexus, as Diliana said, and you're generating income in that state. They're looking at that saying, well, wait a minute, the, the appreciation to wealth, if you will, occurred in my state. So what we're going to do is when you sell that partnership interest, we're going to look through that partnership and say, aha, a portion of this came from Massachusetts when you were in Massachusetts. And that value then that, that was created while in Massachusetts should be taxed in, in Massachusetts, in the state. And so we're seeing states that are glomming onto this. And in fact, the, the Multi-State Tax Commission has picked this up as, as the way to go and are looking at this particular issue, but kind of going the direction of this look-through concept. Um, you have other states, uh, Ohio is a, a good example, where their Supreme Court looked at this very issue and said, wait a minute, now that doesn't make any sense we're just going to tax you based on where the investor's located and not employ this look-through method. So there's about a dozen states or more that have some sort of policy or statute or guidance that you have to look through. But again, this is an area where 
you, you look back five, ten years ago, we wouldn't have thought twice. So partnership interests, you're not going to apportion that anywhere, generally speaking. You're going to put that where the investor's located. And now, fast forward, you know, a half a decade or a decade, and uh, and we're really looking at states taking a very close look at that. So I'll say when you have a sale of a partnership interest, it's not a foregone conclusion. It's just where the investor is. You really have to look at the state. You have to look at the activities. You have to look at whether that was business, non-business, et cetera. So, um, again, it's an area that I think over the next, you know, five, ten years, we're going to see a lot of development in terms of guidance and in terms of state positions. But it's one to start start looking at and start paying attention to if you if you haven't already. Informative and very timely. So I appreciate appreciate that uh, those thoughts. And um, I just want to say thanks, Mike and Diliana, for, for joining us today. Um, I think this has been great. Um, and, and thank you guys for listening. Uh, we want to hear from you. If you have any questions about this topic or anything else, please reach out to me, Mike Diliana, or any of your KPMG contacts. Thanks again and have a great day. Thanks for listening to Talking Asset Management with KPMG. Be sure to subscribe to this series and visit read.kpmg.us forward slash talking dash asset dash management for more information.